Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 4, Episode 12. Do we actually have a right to an education in the United States? This episode's title may at first seem like a strange question. By the late 1920s, after all, every state in the U.S. had mandatory public education laws, along with an architecture to fund and operate public schools on the local level through taxation in order to provide that public education free at the point of delivery for every child within its borders. But on the other hand, there is not, and never has been, any enshrined right to an education in the Constitution of the United States of America, at least not at the federal level. The closest we get to anything truly national is probably the Northwest Ordinance, passed by Congress in 1787, which held that, quote, religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, schools and the means of education shall forever be encouraged, end quote. That's a little underwhelming. I mean, imagine if the Declaration of Independence had read something like, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and we forever encourage you to consider that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness might be pretty important. If education is any kind of inalienable right, well, then that right has to fall as per the Tenth Amendment under the auspices of the states. As early as the 1870s, most states did wind up having constitutional language providing for free public education, but that isn't the same thing as establishing education as a right. Just because something is practiced all the time doesn't mean that it's enshrined in such a way that it's guaranteed, and that's something that I'm not sure a lot of Americans understand or appreciate. Free public education may be ubiquitous, but it's not something that we can or should take for granted, because there have been moments in American history, and America's present, that have laid that reality uncomfortably bare. I want to start with one of those moments in 1975, when the state of Texas, in the news more recently for its radical rejection of abortion rights, took another radical step by passing a law that barred access to public schools to the children of undocumented immigrants. James Plyler, the superintendent of schools in the town of Tyler, Texas, had initially ignored the law until he was ordered by the school board to enforce it. At that point, the schools in his district began turning away families who could not produce their children's birth certificates, even if their parents could prove residency and that they had paid their taxes. Sixteen children belonging to four undocumented families, the Alvarezes, Hernandez, Robleses, and Lopezes, had been denied access for this reason, and when they appealed to the school board, they were told they needed to pay a $1,000 fee per child in order for them to attend. That works out, if you're curious, to about $5,000 per child in today's money. This was beyond the family's ability to afford, and besides, the whole point of public education is free public education. So the parents took the dangerous step of coming forward and challenging this decision in court, even though it exposed them to the risk of deportation. And the Mexican Legal Defense and Education Fund paid for famous civil rights lawyer Peter Roos to argue their case before the District Court of Texas, where the judge was named, and I could not make this up, Judge William Wayne Justice. 
Yes, a justice named justice, only in Texas. When Roos requested that the plaintiffs be allowed to testify anonymously so as to protect them from the danger of deportation, Justice Justice refused, but to his credit, he did try and minimize publicity and media access by, among other things, holding the proceedings before dawn hours and not releasing the plaintiff's names to reporters. To this day, the plaintiff in the case is listed as John Doe. Roos argued the case based on the precedent of none other than Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka, positing that, among other things, a, quote, Denial of educational opportunities is repugnant to our notions that an informed and educated citizenry is necessary to our society. Unquote. But when Ross started talking about education as a fundamental right, Justice Justice wasn't ready to go that far. He wasn't willing to subject the new law to the level of judicial review known as strict scrutiny, the level on which courts deal in issues of fundamental rights. Justice Justice instead went to the lowest of the three levels of review the rational basis test. In other words, he wound up overturning the law, but not because it infringed on some essential right of the children. Instead, because in his view, the law didn't make rational sense. The state of Texas was arguing that the law was necessary because undocumented children were too expensive to educate, as they often needed bilingual services, or if they were poor, free meals and clothing. Justice Justice said that if this was a reason to refuse admittance without supplementary tuition, then why weren't you charging tuition to poor children or non-English speaking children who were citizens or documented immigrants? If this was really all about the school needing the money, then rationally, they should charge all high cost to educate families in this manner. Justice Justice basically called BS on Texas's rationale. You only passed this law, he told the state's attorneys, because, quote, little political uproar was likely to be raised on the defendant's behalf, end quote. When he went on to rule in favor of the plaintiffs, Justice Justice was rewarded with many celebratory gestures from local Mexican families and many pieces of hate mail from local whites. This wasn't the end of the story, though. The state of Texas immediately appealed to federal district court, which also decided in favor of the plaintiffs but once again on the basis of the law's rationality, not on any grounds that it violated the children's right to an education. In other words, had Texas schools decided to lay down a blanket tuition charge for all students to just abandon free public access entirely, that apparently would have been okay. The case eventually rose all the way to the level of the U.S. Supreme Court as Plyler v. Doe, Remember, the plaintiffs' names weren't shared, hence John Doe, and Plyler was the name of the superintendent, and by this time it was 1981, and it was the Reagan administration's Justice Department that also stepped into this fray. Once again, the Mexican-American Legal Defense Fund tried to carry on the work of the NAACP in Brown v. the Board of Education, namely arguing that this was an issue of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. The problem for them was, there was other precedent they were facing as well. Specifically, another case that had also originated in Texas, 1972's Supreme Court case San Antonio Independent School District versus Rodriguez. This was one of several cases where a group of citizens attempted to challenge the very crux of the injustice of American public education, its glaring inequities. Remember, public schools in the United States are governed and funded largely at the local level of cities, towns, and districts, funded by local property taxes specifically, 
which ensure that schools in less wealthy areas will always have many fewer resources than schools in wealthier areas. Beginning in 1968, a man named Dimitri Rodriguez had joined with other parents from a series of low-income districts in the state of Texas that sued the state on 14th Amendment equal protection grounds, demonstrating how counties like Edgewood had made an enormous tax effort to fund their local schools. They had in fact the highest bond indebtedness of any county in the state, yet still they couldn't even come close to providing the kinds of schools that you could find in wealthier counties like Alamo, which had a lower tax rate, but due to the town's high property values, could generate much more revenue. A district court ruled in their favor, but the U.S. Supreme Court overruled them, arguing that since there is no fundamental right to an education in the Constitution, this wasn't an equal protection issue after all. And furthermore, since the system did not systematically discriminate against all poor people in Texas, even that irrationality standard didn't apply here. Justice Lewis Powell, siding with the majority, wrote, quote, The Equal Protection Clause does not require absolute equality or precisely equal advantages, unquote, when it came to both wealth and access to public education. The court decided that education was not a right, but rather a benefit, technically a property interest, that could be conferred by the states. Justice Powell was still on the Supreme Court at the time of Plyler v. Doe, and so was Thurgood Marshall, who, as an NAACP lawyer, helped argue for the plaintiffs in Brown. Marshall challenged the lawyers from the state of Texas about whether the state had a right to deny undocumented immigrants other public services. Could, for example, the fire department refuse to put out a blaze at the houses of undocumented immigrants? Clearly, no, since Texas's attorneys were also hammering on the fact that these children's parents had committed a crime by crossing the border and settling illegally, Marshall pointed out that the children of people convicted of other crimes, murder, rape, theft, you name it, weren't being denied school admission in Texas. As the case went on, the court decision appeared uncertain, with the swing justice being none other than Powell. And Powell was still leaning heavily on the precedent from San Antonio versus Rodriguez. Back then, he had written, quote, It is not the province of this court to create substantive constitutional rights in the name of guaranteeing equal protection of the laws. Unquote. If the court established education as a constitutional right, Powell argued, it would open a Pandora's box about whether things like food, health care, and housing might also be up for that kind of consideration. And while some of us might argue that would be a good thing, it was a bridge way, way too far for him, as well as for then-Chief Justice Berger, who famously said, quote, The Constitution does not provide a cure for every social ill nor does it vest judges with a mandate to try and remedy every social problem." End quote. It was Justice William Brennan who managed to broker a compromise with Powell, leading the court to make a 5-4 decision in favor of the plaintiffs, and also leading the court to define education not as a right, but not merely as a benefit. What exactly was it? Well, that got left pretty nebulous. The upshot was basically the court decided that no state could pass a law barring undocumented children from public schools and left those bigger existential questions for future cases. Make no mistake, this was an important civil rights ruling, but it still didn't touch the whole idea behind the savage inequalities inherent in the drastic funding disparities in U.S. schools. The next big challenge there came in 2016, 
when a group of students from several different schools in Detroit, Michigan, brought suit on the basis of the dramatically inadequate, some might say horrifying, conditions at their school. In a gripping 136-page complaint, which I've linked to in the sources section of this episode's page on the podcast website, the students highlight such depredations at their school as class sizes of 50 or 60 students or more, with students sitting on the floor or standing in the back, insufficient textbooks, non-functional computers, classrooms that flooded during times of rain, and at other times could grow so hot in excess of 100 degrees that it induced vomiting in students and teachers alike, bathrooms that leaked sewage into the halls, English language learners receiving no language education services at all, just sitting or standing all day in classes they couldn't comprehend, such a teacher shortage in general, in fact, that classes were often taught by paraprofessionals, or even, in one egregious case, by an eighth-grade student who was the teacher of record for over a month, cafeterias serving moldy bread and expired milk, undrinkable water coming from the water fountains, campuses infested by rats, cockroaches, and maggots. The list goes on. Students who attended these schools, whose families couldn't afford to move to a wealthier area, were basically stuck with these conditions, conditions so bad that little to no actual learning could take place, while their more affluent neighbors enjoyed safe, functional schools that actually gave them an education. So read the plaintiff's complaint. On the surface, the San Antonio versus Rodriguez decision essentially answers all of that with, well, that's too bad, but no one ever promised you a right to an equal education. In fact, you don't have any enshrined right to an education at all. However, the Detroit plaintiffs, as was the case with a similar lawsuit around that same time coming out of Rhode Island, argued that the impact of this fiendishly inequitable situation extended beyond education that in fact their education was so inadequate that these students were graduating with an inability to know enough to exercise many of the other rights that the Constitution did guarantee them. How well can you be expected to vote in an informed way or petition your representatives, they argued, if you've been denied instruction in how to read? How can you engage in commerce and property ownership if you haven't been permitted to learn mathematics? At first, a district court dismissed the case entirely, but in 2020, the Sixth Circuit Federal Appeals Court indeed found these arguments persuasive, and ruled that, in light of the reasoning and the plaintiff's argument, there must be, by extension, something like a constitutional right to an education. It wasn't a unanimous decision. In fact, it split neatly along party lines, with two Democratic-appointed judges voting in favor, while the third judge, appointed by Republican President Donald Trump, dissented, arguing, among other things, that the plaintiffs had not been denied the right to an education because they could always choose to attend a private school. This, in turn, prompted a writer for Forbes magazine to draw a connection to the sarcastic French proverb, the law, in its majestic equality, forbids rich and poor alike from sleeping under bridges, begging in the streets, and stealing loaves of bread. So what happened next? Well, we don't know yet. At some point, the U.S. Supreme Court either will or won't take up the case, and either will or won't establish some sort of right to an education. What would happen if the highest court in the land decided that, yes, education is indeed a right for every child in the country? Well, as narrowly defined by this case, the Sixth Circuit ordered that students must have access to, quote, 
skills that are essential for the basic exercise of other fundamental rights and liberties, most importantly, participation in our political system, unquote. I read that and I think, man, what a bunch of devils lie in those details. That sort of broad, ill-defined mandate, what skills are essential for the basic exercise of what rights and what liberties, well, that looks impossible to enforce, or perhaps even too easy to enforce. A similar lawsuit in California basically resulted in the governor giving an extra $50 million to low-performing districts to fund literacy initiatives. That is a nice chunk of cash, and I'm sure it'll do a great deal of good, but that kind of targeted intervention really isn't what these cases are about at heart. Saying, in essence, oh, we just need to plug these holes and make sure kids learn these particular skills, so we'll fund these very specific and limited initiatives, may not lead to the kids actually developing those skills. Because, face it, new literacy textbooks aren't going to address the sewage in the halls or the 60 kids in a classroom. And on a broader level, aren't going to send the message that a certain basic quality of schooling is something that we are all fundamentally owed by our country and that which our country will actually provide. In my own state of Massachusetts, a court ruling in the 1990s essentially called the state to task to do just that, and established that the state provide a certain foundational level of funding to bring all school districts up to a certain minimum level of resources. And that was great, but there has been consistent and, I would argue, quite effective lobbying by wealthier districts to keep that minimum funding level that bar as low as possible, so as to keep as few of their local tax dollars as possible from going to serve, quote, someone else's kids in someone else's school system. It does make me wonder whether equity is something that our country can ever come close to achieving in schools, as long as those schools continue to be funded at highly local levels. I've spent time in countries like Japan, where funding is more nationally and therefore evenly distributed, and still, even there, wealthier communities do find all sorts of ways to supplement and boost opportunities for their own kids. But the disparities are nowhere near what they are in our country. And those disparities can be dramatic even between schools that are only a few miles apart from one another. To definitively say that education is a fundamental right of all children in the U.S. would demand that this sort of system end which is probably a big part of the reason why such a right has never been definitively articulated. Justice Powell pretty much said it all. We're not a country that's generally big on guaranteeing material rights like food, shelter, medical care, and education. We're much more comfortable in the USA with intangible rights like liberty and the pursuit of happiness. The Detroit case's argument that you can't really exercise those abstract rights without the rights to those material things reminds me a lot of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You can't self-actualize, said Maslow, if you don't have enough to eat. You can't have a nation full of engaged citizens if they don't have safe and generative conditions in which to learn how to be engaged. Put another way, you can't have a lot of freedom to without a certain degree of freedom from. In this case, freedom from want need, ignorance, and abuse. We've seen a number of movements in the last decade or so in the United States, from Occupy Wall Street to Black Lives Matter, from calls for universal basic income to universal health care, that have tried to push our country towards that model of rights-based security. Heck, the whole idea that COVID-19 vaccines have been provided free to all citizens seems an outgrowth of that kind of philosophy. 
That said, I do think we're still quite a long way from the vision of education as a right for all Americans, but I don't think we necessarily should be. As I've said in previous episodes, I think a general approval of having excellent educational opportunities for all students consistently pulls well among Americans of all political stripes. It may be the only thing our divided America agrees on, on some kind of level of principle. We want all kids to have a chance to succeed and learn what they need to in school along the way. Even if we don't agree on how to make that a reality, we shouldn't run away from saying it needs to happen. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new.